0: You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.
1: To lead us into the session, our next presenter has been one of the main supporters and advocates for establishing this summit. He's been a long-time advocate and campaigner of a range of local and global issues. A former president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, He has served as a Cabinet Minister, indeed as Minister for the Environment under two Australian Prime Ministers. He needs little introduction really because he's an icon in this country. Please welcome Peter Garrett.
2: Gee, thanks very much, Mary. And thanks everybody. I know that we're running a little behind time, so I've had the red line out on my speech, for which some of you will probably be grateful. But uh, it is true that uh, I really did want to see this summit happen, and I'm absolutely delighted, A, to be able to speak, uh, and B, to spend some time both with you uh, in the room and also listening to uh, other speakers and participants in the panel. It's a really, really important day. So as a young boy, I walked through the bush, and I loved it and I developed an affection and a little bit of an understanding about the natural world. And I reckoned as a kid and as I grew older that we should look after it. Uh, As an artist, I was with a group of people that wrote songs about those things and went out and supported people uh, who were working to protect nature. As a conservation activist, I headed up the ACF for a number of years, where we worked closely with government with the community, with farmers, uh, with business, and with the political system to try and secure the protection of nature. And at a later stage, I walked into the parliament and spent 10 years in Canberra, six years uh, in successive Labor cabinets, as Mary said, as environment minister, and then later on as school education minister. And one of the reasons I went into the parliament was because I was so agitated by the fact that the then conservative government under Mr. Howard were not taking climate change seriously. And for me, it was a meta environment issue, even though it's obviously got a number of incredibly important personal dimensions. But five and a half weeks ago, with the new year barely underway, I stood aghast where I live, uh, in Kangaroo Valley in southern New South Wales, looking at the wooden cliffs of the escarpment about 600 metres high, rimmed by a massive blanket of smoke, unlike anything I'd seen or imagined. This one was the mega megafire, a big one amongst hundreds, alight and on the move down the eastern seaboard and in four states across the country. And despite the Herculean efforts of firefighters, many of them volunteers, for weeks, this smouldering giant had been advancing inexorably towards Kangaroo Valley Village and its outlying hamlets. And I watched a deep orange glow, like giant footlights on a stage, illuminating this massive curtain of brown on the other side of the escarpment and the cliffs. In a matter of minutes, above that smoke blanket, a bundle of pyro clouds formed spiralling skyward as the fire spawned its own violent weather system. A water bomber swooping over the ridges to drop its load was like a tiny insect spitting into the mouth of a dragon. The fire had been declared catastrophic. Residents had left for safer locations, a difficult task as areas to the north and the west and the south were already ablaze. Roads were blocked. Bird calls had been replaced by sirens and our tipping point had been reached. We'd lost control of the weather. And the fact was that we had been warned about this for years and what we had been warned about and what I knew about and had felt in my public and in my private life had come to pass. So the fires raged, people were evacuated by naval vessels from the coast as we saw on the television news and read about, and at the same time, what Michael Mann was saying before to us here, the ice sheets were melting quicker, carbon dioxide was filling up the oceans which were turning barren and hot. These phenomena, all part of the same process, the climate emergency, the emergency that brings us here today. I don't need to go into the fact but I do need to honour and record the experience that people went through at that time. Homes and farms destroyed, wildlife decimated, collapse of local economies already happening and it's a reminder of the massive costs, social, environmental and economic of climate chaos and the fact that what We've always said, those of us working on this issue, and all of you in this room know, costs that only rise unless we take urgent action now. Now that Carowan fire, it's a mega fire, it ended up burning for over 70 days and left a trail of destruction in its waste, but we were spared. Others were not so lucky. The community spirit rallied. The fireys toiled bravely day and night, and they showed us our best qualities as Australians. Yet none of this could undo a cataclysm that would affect people for decades. We were face to face with the future, and it was a world of pain, a world of heartache, and a world of harm, and this was only the beginning. So, the question I'm asked is, how do we develop a stand-up, fearless form of leadership? given the failure so far to implement any far-reaching national measures to help confront and minimise this climate emergency. And one thing is certain, and you will hear it here again, many of you know it, but it needs to be repeated, we no longer have the luxury of prevarication or deferral or wishful thinking, and certainly not of blind denial. The time for half measures and incremental action Is well and truly over. But there's hope as well. Right here, the thought and action leaders in the Melbourne Town Hall, including on the panels to come, there are plenty of fearless advocates among us and we've heard some already. And I'll draw on some of their insights as I speak to you today. Still, we do have to ask ourselves why. Why have we failed to deal satisfactorily with the climate crisis now upon us? Now, of the many reasons offered, from the disproportionate strength of the resources industry to voter apathy, the answer is that notwithstanding these and other factors as well, above all, we're experiencing an abject failure of national leadership. And in response to that failure, people are mobilising. The environment re-emerging as a matter of significant concern for Australians. The Governor of the Reserve Bank calling for certainty, code word for, will you get your act together in the Parliament and pass decent laws to allow the nation to exploit, and I quote, fantastic renewable energy opportunities. European governments are setting ambitious reduction targets. Renewable energy is now established as a cost-effective way of producing electricity. As you know, a number of local councils, regional, state and national governments here and overseas have big targets, have declared climate emergencies and more will surely follow. Yes, the broad arc of history suggests that when enough people stand up, believe deeply and are willing to move mountains, then change will come. And yes, one common element when the times demand that change That is, in different ways, leaders, both elected and unelected, emerge and are essential. And of course, we've seen some of those leaders on the screen. Yet in Australia, the absence of such leadership is what's holding us back. As the New York Times headlines succinctly put it, when will Australia's prime minister accept the reality of the climate crisis? Question mark, full stop. Local and state governments let alone communities and individuals, cannot do the hard work on their own. Ultimately, the only institution that can guide and underwrite a major challenge of the scale we face in the time we have left is the national government. And I'll return to what they could do in a moment. But this crisis is also at a deeper level about our core Australian values. And here, surely, it's a matter of returning to first principles, as understood in a religious, humanitarian, or even planetary sense. It is wrong, sorry, in those senses, and I should say, and if by these principles, say, do unto others, or do no harm, or protect all living things, a certain action is understood to be wrong, The task of opposing and putting it right is the only reasonable and moral thing to do. And added to which, applying those other values that make humans a successful species. Collaboration, cooperation, partnerships, innovation and bravery. It is wrong to irresponsibly jeopardise the future by polluting the atmosphere to such an extent the world becomes a furnace. Committing national suicide, to use the words of Nobel Prize winning scientist Peter Doherty. Who can deny this? Only those betraying the interests of their fellow citizens. It is wrong to leave the poor who can't afford to cushion themselves against climate impacts and less well-off Pacific neighbours who played no part in bringing the world to the brink with nowhere to turn. Who can deny this? Only those with such rampant self-interest or blinkered ideology, they persist even when the evidence is spray-canned big and large on the wall. Their power and influence must be taken away. It is wrong (laughs) to frustrate It is wrong to frustrate real action on reducing the risk of climate chaos, to pretend the situation is under control and to sabotage international efforts to reach agreement on reducing emissions. Who can deny this? Only those unfit to govern. So leadership comes from every person who stands up and takes a stand and declares we must act, as young people have begun to do. Leadership comes from those who get involved and stay involved, whether in lobbying, education or non-violent direct mass action. All needed more than ever. All worthwhile until the race is won. Leadership of this kind cannot be described down to the last detail, but I sense it emerging from many different parts of the country. It's present in the work of NGOs like the ACF and Greenpeace, in campaigns like Stop Adani. It's present in the work of local governments and institutions responding to the challenge in front of us, responding to a climate emergency. They are our hope. To them we must add all our efforts. The next part of the question quickly is what does a climate emergency response look like? As you heard earlier, and doubtless you'll hear again, in 1942 the Australian Prime Minister John Curtin contemplated the threat of Japanese invasion. To secure Australia's survival would require nothing less, he said, and I quote, than the reshaping the revolutionising of the Australian way of life until a war footing is arrived at, quickly, efficiently and without question. This meant the resources of the state had to be mobilised to that end above all others. Now, as climate chaos most resembles war in the scale of threats to humanity, the climate emergency dictates the nation must go on to a war footing. So think John Curtin as Japan advanced in 1942, US President Franklin Delaro Roosevelt in the Depression, Winston Churchill in World War II, and more recently, Jacinda Ardern at Christchurch. It can be done. So what might a national leader determined to respond to the climate crisis actually do? So here's a scenario. He or she walks into the House of Representatives and moves as follows that the Parliament accepts the best scientific evidence that to hold temperature increases to around 1.5 degrees and avert an increasingly dangerous climate crisis, we must act immediately to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Recognises that Australia is particularly vulnerable to climate chaos caused by consistently hot weather nationwide, as evidenced recently by the largest, most destructive bushfires in living memory, understands that any delay poses incalculable costs and greatly increases the risk to national security and the stability of our immediate region equivalent to war in terms of impacts, acknowledges that real action has been left to the 11th hour, and that the unjust burden of repairing this negligence will increasingly fall upon the young. Recommend to the House a joint sitting of the Parliament to declare a climate emergency and approve plans to enable the Commonwealth Government working in partnership with state and local governments, large and small business, unions, farmers and the community to deal with the crisis immediately. What follows? A super department. Aligned to Treasury, similar to the Department of Post-War Reconstruction headed up by Nugget Coombs in 1946, is formed with the specific task of implementing the transition. A standalone war cabinet in inverted commas, chaired weekly by the Prime Minister, charged with the responsibility of overseeing the new plan, ensuring Australia meets new ambitious emission reduction goals. The Australian Defence Forces and the Army Reserve geared up to play a greater role given climate chaos will put significant pressure on domestic infrastructure and emergency services as well as the unpredictable ways it will reshape geopolitics in our region including with growing numbers of climate refugees. At a time of record low interest rates the government should issue long-term climate bonds to boost investment in new zero-emission industries. The economy should be stimulated by a massive massive public works scheme to build resilience to extreme climate, including the provision of large-scale tree planting and vegetation management to draw down carbon already in the atmosphere, rehabilitating degraded waterways and landscapes, involving farmers and regional communities with substantial participation by First Nations people. A rapid transition out of coal with an immediate moratorium on future coal, oil and gas developments while increasing the target for renewables. (laughs) Increasing the target for renewables, the most successful measure for reducing emissions we've had so far is essential. A special transition fund for displaced workers to provide support retraining opportunities and adjustment with a minister responsible and inescapably above all a targeted price on carbon to enable a faster reduction in greenhouse pollution with the revenue used to compensate those unduly affected stimulate clean technologies and strengthen our physical and industrial infrastructure for the consequences of wild weather to come Before the Gillard government scheme was brought down by a climate-denying former Prime Minister and let the record show it was Tony Abbott who destroyed the scheme, it actually worked. Emissions came down for the first time in years and the sky did not fall in. This is where the future growth will be. New jobs are already being created in so many areas. Greywater specialists, builders expert in fire protection, manufacturers of new battery technologies, developers of solar farms, these new jobs already exist. More will come. So there is a positive future, which is also kind to the planet. And with the leadership of people who care, who care about the Great Barrier Reef, who care about the fate of the world, who care about the future for their kids, people from all quarters, school students, senior citizens, sports clubs, homes, farms, factories, boardrooms, all of us. Naming the climate crisis a real emergency, demanding our leaders respond and continuing that demand until they do, ensuring this great challenge can be met and a safe future won. As the mega fires of 2020 showed us, there's no time to waste. So let's get on with it. Thank you.
1: Um, Ladies and gentlemen, to moderate this session, please welcome one of Australia's most experienced political journalists, uh, national editor at Guardian Australia, Lenore Taylor.
3: Thank you. Thank you, everybody and I think I can say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming and thank you for caring. I was thinking recently about when I first wrote about global warming. Um, I was writing an editorial uh, for Guardian Australia, and I look back, and I think it was in 1990, I dug out an old press release from the Hawke government where they said the science was clear, the issue was urgent, and they committed to reducing emissions by 20% by 2005. And over the ensuing 30 years, I kept writing about it. I went to innumerable international conferences. I wrote about uh, federal policy. And there were many politicians over those 30 years who really tried to do the right thing. There were just other federal politicians who tried harder to block it or stop it or undo it. And I found myself 30 years on, having grown old, and having had children, and having had those children grown up, And still, federal politicians were talking about whether or not global heating was real and whether or not we should subsidise coal-fired power stations with taxpayers' money. And when you look at it that way, it can feel like this insurmountable roadblock to action, the great political inertia. (laughs) But it just can't be. And that's what we're here to talk about today, how we circumvent or blast through or do whatever it takes to find the leadership that is required or how we become the leadership that is required. And to have this discussion, I'm joined here on the stage starting from furthest along by Paul Gilding. I think I could call you a veteran, <laughs> a veteran, a climate campaigner, climate risk analysis and consultant. Uh, Jean Hinchliffe, one of the student strike organizers from Sydney. Uh, Zali Stegall, the new independent member for Warringah, and Peter Garrett, who clearly needs no introduction. I think we can start with Zali because you've just introduced your bill to parliament, which is really aiming just to put us back on a path to net zero emissions by 2050, to try and put the debate back on a path and give politicians, federal politicians, a chance to reset. Can you just Quickly explain what it is and how you think that's going.
4: Yeah, look, I I mean, first I'd say it's fantastic to see so many people here today. It shows just how much passion and motivation there is in the public to find solutions. Um, Traditionally, the pathway politically has been that the parties uh, and, and governments have put in place mechanisms and left the debate to a later date of where we should go. That hasn't worked, and what we've seen is a debate on mechanisms and a debate on goals. So the approach I've taken is, let's lock in a common goal of where we need to go. Let's accept that we want to keep global warming under two degrees as close to 1.5, and put a mechanism in place on how to deliver that. Um, So the Climate Change Act is a framework. It is locking in our Paris Agreement of... of net zero by 2050, and then five-year emission reduction budgets on how that we can actually hold government accountable on how we get there. We all know with big goals you need benchmarks to measure yourselves against to know how you get to that ultimate goal. So that's the key feature.
3: Well, ostensibly we have a common goal now, right? There's bipartisan support for the 26 to 28% reduction, and yet we tie ourselves in not determining whether we can get there by dodgy accounting tricks, like how... Well, we have
4: bipartisan support, but for example, we yes, both parties agree that we're uh, locked in and signed up to the Paris Agreement. But the uh, the the under, well, the requirement of the Paris Agreement is that we get to net zero by mid-century. So we need to lock that into law so that we actually legislate an insurance policy against changes of government and, I think, the infighting in the political parties and the instability that puts that ultimate goal in question and really can negate that denier voice.
3: And just quickly, so your bill may not come to a vote. Is that the only measure of success or failure, or are there other ways that it can have...
4: No, and and that's the important part, is that every voice matter and every one of you here matters in making a difference in raising this debate. Um... As an independent, I can bring to the parliament an opportunity to cut through the political party. There's, a, there's been a lot of stoushes. there's a lot of fighting from both sides, and I agree, the previous member for Warringah uh, uh, weaponised the whole concept of climate change policy and, and how we approach it, so I very much see my role is to try and de-escalate that situation and come up with a sensible plan, um, and that's what the framework is. So it will be introduced as a private member's bill on the 23rd of March, and I rely on all of you. Um, I have enacted a a website which acts as a plebiscite for the Australian people to contact their MPs to put pressure. So if you go to climateactnow.com.au, you can register where your electorate is, write to your MP, ask for meetings, sit outside their door, put pressure. If there's one thing I've learnt in this job is that MPs care about their votes and how they're going to get back in the job in two years' time. So you do have power and you do you can put pressure. From the 23rd, uh, the, there will be a sustained campaign leading up to the 23rd and continuing. Uh, to get that public support. Ultimately, it's if the will of the people is that there be policy change, that's how we'll get it to happen.
3: So, Jane, how does that that plan sound from your point of view?
0: I think that sounds pretty great. I think that us young people have consistently seen the government firstly debating whether climate change is actually real, and now it seems that it's so drawn in party lines, and neither party is coming up with an ambitious enough policy and even just having this framework and knowing that we will be holding ourselves accountable I think is something that is really great and it's, it's something that's more ambitious than what we're doing right now and at the end of the day it is the bare minimum. We need to be doing more but I think it's a really, really great place to start, um, particularly as a young person knowing that if it does pass our government will be held to account. So, Paul.
3: Gilding, you um, argue that even the activist community hasn't really grasped the urgency of this situation and needs to do things kind of radically differently from how they have been to to date.
5: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I've been on on this issue for 30 years on climate change and 45 years, so very much a veteran, unfortunately. Um, Complete failure in my life's work, but apart from that. but I think Jean's movement is so important here. The fact that we have the, you know, the climate strike movement, Extinction Rebellion, etc., not coming from the existing environmental groups, but coming from new organisations, is, is a, it's a beautiful thing, don't get me wrong. But it, it says to me that there is a kind of disruptor incumbent relationship between the new players and the old players. Now this is not just to criticise the big environment groups that obviously have played. I spent most of my life working with them, a hugely important role. It's not to criticise them. It's to say we have to all wake up to the scale of what we need to achieve now. The only thing that matters is reducing emissions. Right? No amount of policy or or bipartisanship support, etc., which I think is terrific, is going to count unless we cut emissions. Right? And, and that is not the way we're focusing the campaigns at the moment. The fact that Extinction Rebellion has, you know, spread like an Australian bushfire through the world, you know, and show them what real activism looks like, I think is incredibly important, right? The fact that the school strikes... <laughs> they deserve <clears throat> the applause. And the fact that the school strikes, you know, have have brought up a whole generation of people who are just saying, nah, fuck off, that's not enough, right? Don't do that. You know, we are... We are not gonna take it anymore. And not getting into complex debates, just talking to Jean before, not getting into those debates about this emission, that we, it's just like, listen to the science. Are you drongos or what? The science is very clear, just act according to the science. And that, that is the role of activism, right? And I think we have lost that, lost our way as activists, and I count myself as an activist, lost our way in that sense of just speaking truth to power Right, and saying, no, that's not OK anymore, right? We have to do something radically different. And it's not that they have to solve every problem or have every complicated answer to every economic transformation. That's Ali and Peter's job, etc. But there is a role for activism, which is just saying, no, we're not doing that, we're doing this, and we're going to hold your feet at the fire. And if necessary, we're going to close cities down and countries down until you do it. That's what we need in the modern day.
3: argue in response to that, and there is some um, research to support this, that there's a a cohort of the population that can read the signs, understands, is alarmed, gets it. And then there's a cohort that is not denialist, but is not yet completely convinced, and might actually be turned off by those kinds of actions or that kind of language. And there's also the denialist sort of industry, if you like, that wants it to be a hyperpartisan debate, that wants that because that can coalesce a tribe around sort of almost the identity of denialism. Is that a danger? How do you respond to that?
5: It's totally a danger. And, and we rec- I recognise that, that, that danger of that process, especially in our political leadership, which I think it becomes a very destructive process. That's not about activism. And I think that's a different idea. So, so should we so moderately go out and say, excuse me, but the science says this, the science says that, this is very important, it's bad for your economy, you know, you are going to be affected by this over the long term, your kids will be affected by it. Hello, we've been doing it for 30 years, right? And, and it has not had the desired impact. And if you look at other social movements historically, which is the, some of the work that I do, um, then you have to recognise that there are no significant social movements which have really changed I mean, emancipation of women, end of slavery, civil rights in the US, etc. Et Nothing this big changes unless you have a very aggressive, and I use that word cautiously but deliberately, I don't mean violent or unpleasant, I mean polite, but aggressive, saying no, that's not okay. The Extension Rebellion people, I think, have done an amazing job on this issue because they don't go out and get angry. They, they, they close down bridges in London and then form childcare centres in the middle of the bridge. And the police go in and say, what the fuck do I do with that? Right? So, and people say, you're making my day a mess. I'm late for work. I'm really sorry about that. This very inconvenient. I recognise genuinely this is very inconvenient for you. And the collapse of civilisation would probably be more inconvenient for you. And so while I do genuinely apologise and I do genuinely, you know, don't want to do this to you, we have no choice. That's what we face. And so I think you have to recognise that dynamic is what drives change.
0: So, Peter, you've... Also to add on to that, um, I know particularly as a young person involved in the school strike movement, this isn't just suddenly that young people are getting engaged because we've cared about this for a while, we've grown up seeing climate science and knowing that climate change is real. It was sort of irresputable fact at this point and we've tried signing petitions, we've tried holding protests on weekends, we've gotten involved in a whole bunch of campaigning but no one cared and no one listened to us because we couldn't vote. But suddenly, we take, what, two to three days off of school a year? And we're talked about constantly, we're getting meetings with leaders, we're being put in these really important spaces. And this wouldn't be happening if we didn't break the rules. And frankly, we don't want to strike, we don't want to have to take such extreme action per se, but we're forced to at this point because we simply aren't listened to otherwise.
3: Okay, so Peter, you've looked at this from both sides now, if you like, from inside politics and from outside as an activist. And we just heard, you know, what Prime Minister Peter Garrett would do at the dispatch box, or. <laughs> but what is it politely? It's
2: ag- thinking on your part on Is way.
3: politely aggressive yeah. activism what would get us from where we are to a politician actually doing anything like what you
2: just suggested?
3: What, what gets us from there?
2: To uh, well, look... I think the thing about this question is that it's, it's a really good question, but in some ways it's also, the answer is also in the question. And it's simply this. We have to do anything and everything. Um, as an activist, we have to take our activism to the next level. If we're working inside the political system, as Zali now is, um, that has to be taken to the next level as well. And the truth of it is that the system in this country is relatively robust, but it still needs to be and should be at its best an accountable system, not only on election day, but on every day of the year. And there's no doubt at all that what Jean says is right. Um, The fact that young people have decided essentially to shame their elders uh, by getting out and getting onto the streets in the way in which they have has made those elders rethink their position on things. Uh, My own view about this is that it's going to be a mix of things that happen drawing both on the energy and the expertise and and, uh, the summit that we're having today, drawing on the efforts of both uh, individual politicians and others within their parties who would like to see change, drawing on civil society, but we have to be prepared in a non-violent and compassionate way uh, to keep on going until we get the job done. So my own feeling is that we will have substantial levels of greater mass civil disobedience, which I endorse if it's non-violent. My view is that we'll see increasing fractiousness within both uh, the major political parties but also within the parliament, which I think it will be an inevitable consequence of people starting to wrestle with their conscience about this issue. And then finally, I think there's, if you like, the bigger demands that the Australian public, fair-minded people, decent people as a whole, will make on their leaders as all of this unfolds.
3: So I wanted to throw this open to the whole panel. The role of the major parties in this. Uh, Zali's introducing this bill as an independent. The major parties, you say, will become more fractured. So let's sort of call a spade a spade. The denial, particularly in the coalition, there is a, a rump of denialists politicians, who've basically sort of held the system to ransom, the po- policy-making system to ransom, for a decade. C- can the major parties actually cope with this change? I don't know, do you want to... I mean, you both um, probably... Look, uh, that's
4: why I'm calling for a conscience vote. I think, ultimately, climate impacts affect our security. This is our long-term safety that's at stake, and we've seen it no better... Uh, view of it and experience of it than this summer with communities being evacuated from beaches. I mean, if this was an invasion, uh, you would uh, if this had, I mean, you talked of war, if this had been a, a conflict, I think we would have lost the conflict. Um, because our level of, if you downplay the impact of the challenge ahead, your level of preparedness is simply not up to the task. So there's no doubt that we have now seen that this is a matter of safety. It's our way of life, it's our animals, uh, it's our flora, our fauna, biodiversity, but it's also, we've seen our major cities under huge amounts of uh, air pollution, record number of days, I attended uh, school presentations where kids are in face masks. Uh, We've had regions that are ravaged by drought. So the impacts are being felt now, and I think there is that case that this is a safety issue. It's a matter of principle. Now, to get the major parties to elevate this issue out of the party room, because. As any democracy, we have a broad range of views in the community, and just as activism plays its role, you have to make sure you take everyone on board. And that's the hardest thing to do on any issue, is finding a consensus that takes the majority of the population along with you to get that change. So by elevating it to a matter of principle, you are asking your MPs to vote on it as a matter of conscience. And so then everyone can represent their electorate so if you are a an electorate in Queensland somewhere that just denies the climate change then your MP can reflect that but all the other MPs that take policies of being progressive and wanting to put stronger action on climate action on climate policy then they have a duty to represent their electorates as well so that is why it's important to Activism plays a a phenomenal role in raising awareness, but you have to take everyone along. You can't leave parts of
3: the community behind. Do you want to... Peter, do you think the major parties can rise to
2: this challenge? Uh, I I think the answer to whether the major parties can rise to the challenge is that we can't afford for them not to rise to the challenge, whether you're a a Liberal voter, a Labor voter, a Green voter or, or agnostic about it. We cannot afford them not to rise to the challenge. And I do know, and I've had a lot of chance to speak, so I'll make this quick, that when you're in the parliament, and Sally would know it as well, you are accountable to, if you like, the inputs that you receive. Now, if someone's knocking on your door every 15 seconds and saying, what are you going to do about climate? what do you think about the climate emergency? I want to see significant reduction emissions in your party's policy. I want to see what you're going to do with this piece of legislation. If you've got groups of voters coming to you, to your electorate office on Friday when you are back from the parliament, if your email email boxes are filled with not form emails, but real emails, really engaging, if you get a sense when you walk out your front door that that the country is alive and demanding that you listen to them and you respond, uh, then I think we'll see some change. But until that happens, I'm not so confident.
0: Um, yeah, I, I think at the root of it, we've got to remember that, to an extent, politicians are followers rather than leaders, per se. And if they're... <laughs> <laughs> if the public demands it, and if, as you are saying, if they're knocking on their door constantly, if they're attending protests, if they are saying that they will vote for the candidate who has the best climate policy. At that point, politicians have to support this, even if they don't particularly want to, because they want to keep their jobs and we need to make them feel the need to have great climate policy and to support that. Um, I think at the end of the day, we're just gonna have to force them into it and we can't afford not to.
5: So I've spent 15 years researching this whole issue of climate emergency and writing papers about it and so on because I think we need to understand this is not unprecedented, right? The science and the risk is absolutely unprecedented but as Peter said and as, as, as David Spratt said this morning there are many good examples of us responding to an existential threat and doing it incredibly well and the points about everyone has to be on board of course is right, right? You don't want to think rebellion much as I love them running a government Right? But you do want them pushing the government to act. Right? And that's a very different, different context. What triggers the change? What delivers the change? And I think the, the thing I've studied a lot is World War II because it is still the best global example of massive economic transformations and what they look like and how they happen. And on this issue of leadership and Churchill, Churchill was a deeply flawed human being, alcoholic, depressed, mostly out of control, Deeply insecure and an egomaniac. and this is not a good set of conditions for a political leader. He was so perfect for the time, so perfect for the time, because you needed to. And I've actually written about this in my book, *The Great Disruption*. You, you need to actually be a little bit unhinged, right, to believe that you can achieve the impossible. And I say that, you know, not just I would as take a joke. A to yeah, that. that's right. <laughs> we're waiting for you. Um, so, and I saw a psychoanalyst, you know. Uh, external, you know, post-case review of Churchill saying if he had been a sensible, sane, balanced person, he would never have believed he could win. Right, really important sort of idea is that, that what happened with Churchill was not Churchill. What happened with Churchill was the context changed. Right, so Peter's point is the context has changed. Now, the context has changed. We need different leadership, but we have to demand it. Churchill didn't just float out of the sky. Right, the context changed, and then people pushed him, and pushed that kind of leadership on the agenda, and that's why the activism is so important. It's also why business leadership is so important. So it's why etc. etc. Cetera, et cetera.
3: So that was the. We're sort of starting to run out of time, and I want to get up to questions in a second, but that is one thing we should discuss: the role of business in all of this, because really. ...not loudly, but kind of quietly and behind the scenes. Business has been begging for some sort of policy certainty for a really long time. Business wants politicians to act on this. And it's almost baffling. Like, they're supposed to be the constituency of a Conservative government, yet they're not even listening to business.
4: Absolutely. and. I think that's where the debate has been a little bit stuck in the mechanisms as opposed to locking in that policy certainty that they are looking for. So that's been so welcome this week that, in fact, the business sector has started to stand up and support the framework legislation of the Climate Change Act because it does provide that long-term certainty that they're looking for. Now, we don't even know the answers to some of the questions that we're going to have in 10, 15 years' time. Um, But what we do need is investment in research and development we need policy certainty for business to be able to go down that path to put in place plans for 10-15 years of capital investment and that's why they have been calling out for policy uh, certainty and and stability and that's why it's so important to lock in that long-term goal of where we want to go they are absolutely um, the ones that will drive the solutions. Uh, but what they do say overwhelmingly is they need the federal government to um, get in step with all our state governments. Everyone is working towards those goals. We need to do the
3: same.
2: Do you want to...? Uh, well, look, I think, I think I've got a slightly more sanguine view about uh, business than Zali does, and Paul will, will have one as well. But the point I was going to make is that we've already done it, and I made this in my address, and it was a brief moment, Uh, It happened to be a Labor government, but the point was that it worked, and I do remember really distinctly, uh, and I'm not betraying confidences here, when we were first briefed by Treasury officials about what the likely cost impact of a carbon tax or carbon levies, as it properly was and became called, even though it was very political, what impact that would have on the population, how much revenue would be raised how that revenue would be recycled to help poorer people dealing with potential energy increases, to be invested in renewable energy and the like. And our smart bureaucrats in Canberra and Treasury basically got it right, and emissions went down. Now, you look at the trajectory of emissions in this country, and they're going up. If you look at the trajectory of emissions worldwide, the same thing's happening, and yet we saw the scheme work. So it's, it's not as though it's rocket science in one way, it's just political will. And on the, business, on the question of business, business will always apply two really important principles to play. One is self-interest, in other words, how's my business going to prosper? And the other is shareholder value. And the fact of the matter is that um, the worm has completely turned on coal and on those fossil fuel industries, and business is responding.
5: Look, I- I've spent... I've spent- i spent 25 years working in the corporate sector um, and on this issue because I think it's the missing link in all this debate um, now that we need them to put their voice into the debate really strongly and quite aggressively in the same sort of activist way, not obviously in the streets being arrested, although it wouldn't hurt some of them to have that experience, um, is that is I think they have to really strongly argue for this. They sign things, they support communiques, you know, we have very, and I you know, genuinely have very serious discussions with very large global companies about this issue. And it's quite a passive response. It's quite a passive response, because right? as Peter said, they don't feel threatened by it. Right? And I think what we do see, though, is we have to mobilise the business community to act. We have to recognise that in, and this is the focus of most of my work, in disruptive economic change, incumbents normally die and are replaced. this is a really important idea to get across to activists but also to policymakers is that we keep on going through this process which I've done for 20 years in, in in the corporate sector unsuccessfully is to say it's coming you must change right we're now at a point where it is changing incredibly quickly as Peter alludes to the large oil coal and gas companies will not transform to become energy companies right they will fail economically They will die, they will disappear and be replaced. And if we need to design policy around that reality, we saw the comment from BP yesterday, you know, zero by 2050. These companies are not going to change. And I spend my time working with them, they're good people. This is not because they're evil kind of, you know, personified out to destroy the world. The system does not support them changing.
3: Go to questions now, and I'm going to throw the first one, if I can just get up on screen, to Jean first. What do you think is a likely politi- political tipping point for climate action?
0: I, I Now? Think it, oh. <laughs> now, is, now is a very good time. I think genuinely the, we've seen... Uh, here's the thing. I think climate change and now climate emergency is referring to it as um, has been seen as this distant far away intangible issue for a really long time um and the fires i think have completely changed that and they have been so awful and catastrophic but the silver lining to it in my opinion is that we have 10 years to avert the worst impacts of this crisis it's not too late and we're at a point where on instagram i'm seeing ads for fashionable um like masks for the smoke it's It's around us constantly, and we can't ignore it anymore. And we're seeing more and more people are mobilising, more and more people are getting really interested. Um, In Sydney recently, we had a protest organised in 10 days that had 40,000 people show up. That wasn't happening even a year ago. (laughs) I think that we're very close to it, and I think the Climate Act is coming at a really perfect time. We just need more people to mobilise and more people to get involved in this grassroots action. And I think we're at a tipping point right now, really. Does anyone else want to join in on that one or we go to the
3: next
2: question? Just uh, just to quickly say um, that the fires obviously were really significant and have seared our public consciousness and they are a kind of tipping point, but they have to translate into something. Mm. And uh, you'd be amazed at how quickly uh, our collective memories uh, can fade away on things of this scale. So I think that uh, embedding that sense that we did actually face literally a climate emergency and then reflecting that uh, through opinion polls uh, and through political action on the streets, in the boardrooms, in the schools, wherever it might be, so that the message is strongly received will be a potential tipping point for climate action in the parliament.
5: Paul? Yeah, look, I, I think, um, agree with both those comments, but I would add one thing, which is I think the political tipping point will probably be economic. And what I mean by that is that it is very clear now that the fossil fuel industry is going to collapse economically. The coal industry is pretty much gone. It's not translating into valuation as much as it will just yet, but it will soon. It's not long before people recognise that there is no future for oil and gas either. Now, at that point, the valuation of those companies will dramatically collapse. You know, I don't worry about policy to phase out the coal industry. I worry about policy to manage the collapse of the coal industry. Now, that's the issue is that these industries are going to fall apart and shareholders and investors and risk managers and insurers, you know, there's a paper we just put out with breakthrough called Climate Contagion. This idea, right, that as, as you price things differently in the market by insurers, by the lack of public support for your existence, you know, there's, there's groups in the, in the in Netherlands now called Shell Must Fall. They're not campaigning for Shell to change. They're campaigning for Shell to cease to exist. Now that is a perfect storm for an investor right, in terms of the valuation of those companies. Once that happens, the politics will scramble, I think, to recover, because there's gonna be massive loss of value for Australia and we're gonna need massive investment right, in the alternative industries to, to soak up those jobs. So we're gonna be managing the emergency economically and that I think will probably be the, economic, the political tipping point.
3: OK, do we have another question?
4: Oh, add to that, sure. We need to be focused a bit more on the positives. I think... The, the, I mean, I get a huge amount of feedback from the community about the anxiety and, and, and because there is so much emergency and we are at a tipping point, but we need to focus and I, I say resilience carefully because I know the Prime Minister's now using that term, uh, resilience is not resignation to uh, to, to a fate or, or to the circumstances, but we do need to be focused on the positives, on the outcomes that we do control. Um, as, a sport, as an athlete, uh, you never start a race day focusing on the things you can't control, you focus on what you can control and you put faith and your confidence and your energy behind that. So I do think in harnessing your power you know it, it, it is about being focused on the positive things you can achieve where you can make a difference everyone plays their part just as australia in our global challenge Plays its part. So does every one of us, uh, and 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 starting from me, I'm very aware of that. But yep. we, we do need to be posi- focused on the positive things, not uh, because it becomes very divisive when even in that kind of talk, when you're you're sort of focusing on the demise of, of a sector of our economy that has supported us and gotten us a long way. I think the divisiveness over the, over climate has left some people behind because they've felt judged and blamed for the crisis, even though, you know, for many years they've worked very hard to build up the Australian economy. So, it's really important to be positive and take people forward. That
3: surely comes back to the question at hand around leadership. I mean, the economic transformation possible in Australia is an incredibly positive story if there was leadership to do what was necessary and to make the case about how that transition could happen. Which handily brings us to our next question: What infrastructure is needed to facilitate change in business? Who wants to take that one?
4: Well, I think they need policy certainty <laughs> very clearly. Um, you... they, it requires big capital investment. They need to know that they're on track for a good 10-15 years of visibility on where where we're tracking as a government. They need to know that on a bipartisan basis, everyone okay. is focused on a goal. Can I bring you in
2: there? Uh, Well, look, although I don't agree with what Zali said before completely, I certainly agree with that point. I think that um, in an economic system such as we have, you've got to have a price in the market on carbon. It has to ratchet itself up as it goes with a scheme that's well-designed, equivalent to what we had in place before, and that would make the biggest change in business because immediately business would respond in the terms that they understand and they would have some certainty about what was going to happen in the future. By the same token, um, I just do want to make one quick point here. I really do not accept that business or people building businesses, and you could say that I've been a small business and myself, have any excuse whatsoever in not understanding the implications of what's being put to them now. Because it's not as though there are any surprises here. This is a matter that's been debated in the Federal Parliament for 15 years. Now, a lot of the debate's been pretty ordinary, but the facts have been on the table. And for business to step up now and show leadership is the most important infrastructure that we could get.
0: Um, Yeah, I I think again, we need a price on carbon. That is necessary. And it's one of the most effective policies. And the fact is that we, I, I think, again, it's is that businesses need to step up and they need to be the ones leading this because they've known about this for years. We've known about the science for so many years and they can't keep putting it off until we have policy in place because whilst that is really important, they need to step up and they need to start taking action even before the government does now.
3: Right, do we have another question? Nope. <laughs> oh, okay, I have another question. Do we have one from... Oh, no, oh, this one. Does mm-hmm. the way big environmental NGOs' campaign need to change? We've heard... Sorry. I'll try one more time. Does the way big environmental NGOs' campaign need to change?
0: I can't do anything about do you the microphone to... going on. Anymore. Does the way big environmental NGOs' campaign need to change? <laughs> so,
3: we've heard call on this. I think we might start with... <laughs>
2: So I understand the frustration that people have that to some extent uh, the broader NGO movement hasn't been focusing with a sense of urgency in terms of people's perception uh, to the climate crisis and I think that they uh, as a whole do need to respond to that sense that there's not enough sharp edge in the campaigning they're doing. By the same token, I think that there are lots of layers beneath uh, the efforts that people are putting in. And and I think about um, some of the legal cases, I think about the Stop Adani campaign, I think about what Greenpeace has been doing uh, down in the great artesian bite. And I think about the way in which uh, a number of those NGOs are actually working quite strongly with the community and working at a community level but certainly engendering in all of us, and this includes NGOs, that sense of urgency, that sense of passion, that sense of, we must get into this now, uh, it wouldn't hurt.
3: What about the balance between focus on individual projects or individual uh, resource extraction plans and overall systemic policy?
2: Uh, well, that, 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 that is a balance, and it's a its a really good question, Lenore, and that's one of those challenging things. I mean, the fact is that, people can relate more easily to the idea of stopping a certain specific thing, uh, say, for example, a coal mine uh, run by um, uh, an Indian billionaire, than maybe they would would focus on, say, for example, the Galilee Basin. So I think you have to have a really decent, simply communicated framework and some very, very clear demands in place. You're then identifying those things within that framework that you're specifically campaigning on, but you've got to take people with you. I mean, for me, again, and and, and I know I'm sharing everything what the speakers uh, up here on the stage have said and I'm sure many others, we're really in it together now. And to that extent, yeah, big NGOs uh, think that climate change is incredibly important. Uh, The emerging disruptive NGOs are saying, let's get going on climate. They will work together as I believe that they should. Likewise in the parliament, likewise in business, likewise in the community.
3: Jean, what do you think? Because your movement didn't work through an existing NGO, you sort of set up your own organisation. Why was that?
0: Yeah, um, I think School Strikers, what works so well about it is that the power isn't in a CEO or executive director. Every single student involved can have power within the group. And by having anyone who wants to can set up a strike and they can be involved in national campaigning and decision-making and it allows for really empowering young people that hadn't really been involved much beforehand. And I think that works really well in growing this grassroots movement because we are really decentralised and we are able to empower a whole bunch of different people. But I I think that the environmental movement, not every group needs to work like this. You need to have a variety of groups with these bigger NGOs who are working more centralized, as well as a bunch of decentralized movements where anyone can join. And I think as long as we're working together and conveying the urgency of this and designing strategies together, I think that it can work really effectively. Right, Could we have the next question, please?
3: Good question. Can you talk beyond emissions reduction to negative emissions? Paul, do you want to start with that one?
5: Uh, We will have to to do this. I have no doubt that if we, every forecast about the the way a certain temperature increase translates into impacts in the world has been understating it. So we can assume that will keep on happening. We're going to assume from David and and, and Michael's presentations earlier on that the science is going to underestimate, not overestimate. Therefore, we are going to have to reduce emissions dramatically from from the atmosphere and take them out in some way. That's completely undeveloped. As a technology base, it's completely unreliable and unknowable in how it's going to happen. We will have to get there, therefore we should heavily invest now in the capacity, the research, the ethics, the process of doing that, while we eliminate all other emissions in the next 10 years, right? So we really have to do both those things.
4: It's a, this is difficult. I agree that there's no doubt we need to go further. But uh, I think it's really interesting how people tend to not be willing to act until they're absolutely on the foot of the at at the edge of the cliff and it is dire. So it is actually trying to get movement. Uh, and change in behaviour, change in policy, change in uh, business approach um, to get us there, to get to negative emissions. I mean, we're already having so much trouble just getting to emission reduction. Um, For me, yes, there's no doubt that's our ultimate goal, but for the time being, we actually need to focus on what people actually can believe can be achieved for the moment. Um, uh, If you set the goal too high, you lose everyone along the way.
5: Can I come back on this issue, Zali? And I look, I fully respect what you're doing in the parliament. I think it's excellent. It's a really good thing to do. And good luck to you. I'll be very happy to support that any way we can. That's not how systems change. Systems change. You know, World War II, we did not say, look, guys, Hitler's coming, but if we develop it in this way, there's going to be economic benefits and women can work in factories, you know? <laughs> we didn't... We didn't say it's going to generate economic growth and we'll all be stronger and we're going to do push-ups and be a more powerful country. We said we're all going to fucking die, right? Now, I'm being a little bit flippant there, but the point is fear and fear of loss and fear of collapse is a huge motivator for people. Of course, absolutely agree, and I spend most of my work doing this, the paper that's out there, climate emergency defined, goes through the economic benefits of this. They're enormous. They're very exciting. They have been for 20 years and we still haven't done them. Right? So you absolutely need a bit of good old-fashioned fear and negativity to get motivated to respond. Then you need to do the rest of it.
4: But we've had a lot of fear and negativity and we just had an election and it didn't get us there. So again, there is that argument of there is no right or wrong to this. Um, I think there is a place for all approaches, but at the end of the day, it is only when there's going to be a majority on board that we that, will get there.
3: I mean, that is the point, right? That this was supposed to be the climate election and it didn't really work out that well for climate policy. Maria was Peter a So, I mean, how does, Peter, what, how do you
4: stand on this? Look, it, it, is, uh, it is one of those things. I think it comes back to people and they have to make their will heard.
2: Uh, well, I think, I think it was a climate election to the extent that, uh, that a climate denier got kicked out of office as a prime minister and someone else got put in. And, uh, and we're thankful for that, I can assure you, having lived in Manly at one stage of my life. No, look, really, um, the, the, the election had a number of other factors at play, and you can analyse it through the purposes of, 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 of leadership, uh, through policy, through different regions responding in different ways. But I do think at the end of the day that when Australians came out of um, the election, settled back into the year and then suddenly found themselves confronting a climate crisis that their world had changed. And how that manifests itself and the speed with which it manifests itself is partly up to us and partly up to our leaders and that's the job at hand. Okay.
3: I might might try this one because mine's a bit dodgy. Um, That's all we've got time for, unfortunately. I think we've heard some differences in emphasis, but actually a kind of um, coalescing around the idea that we really need all of the above and that the leadership struggle is actually in the hands of every citizen who has power and has agency and wants to see something change to take every piece of action that they possibly can. And I think that's really what's shone through from all our speakers today. And would you please join with me in thanking them all?
0: This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.